Welcome to the 260th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have, it's actually an encouraging show we're trying for today. So we're going to be talking about COVID-19, but we have some technical IoT-related solutions that might help you. They might amp up your anxiety. Not sure. So we're going to talk about a couple projects that are worth considering here. And Kevin is going to share with you fitness tips for people stuck at home. Yay! Connected fitness tips, I might add. We're also going to be talking about a new deal between Talus, Telstra, Microsoft, and Arduino to help secure the IoT. We've got an IoT Security Foundation survey that's worth talking about. We're going to be talking about a recent story from CNET about smart home manufacturers being uncomfortable with sharing data with Amazon and Google. We're also going to have a little bit of news from Sonos, Amazon, and a smart ring company. And then we're going to hear from our guest. This week's guest is going to be Nick Dawson, who works at the intersection of medicine and design. He's worked in organizations such as Kaiser Permanente, Johns Hopkins, and Stanford. He's going to be talking about what's stopping us from doing real telemedicine and what might change as a result of COVID-19 going forward in the medical and tech space. We're also going to hear from our sponsor, Machine Q, and much, much more. So let's kick it off with a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Liveworks. Liveworks is the definitive event for digital transformation. And in light of the global coronavirus pandemic, Liveworks 2020 has been reimagined as a complimentary virtual event. So that means it's free. Enjoy an inspiring new digital format this year without the risk of travel, enabling remote participation from anywhere in the world. And yes, I will still be speaking at this event and would love for you guys to join me. So visit Liveworks, L-I-V-E-W-O-R-X dot com for more information. Okay, we have to talk about the coronavirus and COVID-19, but we wanted to be a little bit more upbeat about it and try to help provide some proactive options for people because man it's yeah it's, it's getting tough dark time. out there it's a tough time out there people and i don't mean to make light of it it's this is for real we here at my house and i'm sure you at your house have been inundated with bad news every five minutes so there's some things we can talk about that maybe will make life a little bit better yeah this first one may not make life a little bit better especially if you're prone to anxiety but for some people, it's going to be important to know. So Kevin has started on a home assistant journey. And you guys, man, y'all love his home assistant journey. I love it. They have announced a tracker. And Kevin, you took a look at it. I did. I have not uh, installed this yet. However, there is a coronavirus integration for your home assistant dashboard, I guess would be the best way to call it. So instead of having to go to whatever data set website you go to to see what's happening in your country around the world with the virus. For me personally, I go to Johns Hopkins University, which I think has one of the best sites and maps. In fact, this integration for Home Assistant sources the data from John Hopkins University. So it is all the same data. And basically, it's an integration. You can then um, have a little dashboard or a little display in your dashboard to show the same type of data for uh, your region, country, or worldwide to see 
the number of confirmed cases, how many are current, how many recovered, and sadly, how many have passed away. And I know that sounds like a rather morbid kind of thing. But the truth of the matter is, I think a lot of people are looking at that data many times a day. So I will be adding this to my home assistant dashboard in the coming hours, probably. Okay. And are you going to like tie it to some ambient information or are you just going to have it like as a dashboard? You know, it's funny you say that because <laughs> I actually, and I suspect this is what the home assistant folks have done. I, the, the Johns Hopkins University project is actually run out of their CompSci group. And that makes sense. This is big data in a sense. And there's a GitHub repository for it. I found that. I started digging through the code. Google Sheets data is uploaded every day from various sources. So I can see that. And I even found an API. So in my hand, <laughs> I actually have a eight-digit LED board for an Arduino. And it was just collecting dust. And I was going to use the API to have my Arduino ping the John Hopkins site and show a digital number of one of the data points, because that's all I can do. Or maybe I could rotate through several data points. So I was going to have my own little personal tracker, in a sense. I don't think I'm going to do that now, because it just makes more sense to use this integration with Home Assistant. Yeah, don't build it yourself if you don't have to. I know that's counterintuitive to everything. I, j I was looking at it as a fun little coding project, you know, that's all, because we, we all have lots of time in our hands right now. Um, yes, we do. All right. Here is a, a fun thing from ThingSquare. They built a wireless automatic hand wash sensor and timer. ThingSquare is an IoT platform company. They have a sub gigahertz mesh networking solution that's proprietary. Earlier this week, they built a device that blinks for 20 seconds to let you know how long you should be washing your hands. And it measures the total time you spent washing your hands just to I guess, provide a data point. So the hand wash timer will detect you if you stand in front of the sink and it blinks red for 20 seconds. It's the same tech that turns on the lights in public bathrooms. So there are no cameras and it's just kind of silly. Is it silly? No, I don't think so. I think it can be useful. It, it, ironically, and I don't know if you or any of our listeners saw this on Twitter a few days ago, I, I saw something and I retweeted it to give it a little more exposure, I hope. A bunch of uh, students using Arduino again, and um, ultrasonic sensor, which works very well, there's many of them available for Arduino. They created a little soap dispenser, a touch-free soap dispenser with some gears, the ultrasonic sensor. Oh, you were asking for one of those. I was, I was. But the students, and I don't know what school or what grade they're in, built their own. And I'm like, that's great. See, these are the kind of projects that, okay, they're very purpose-driven, but they're unique. And because of what's going on, yeah, well, let's take the, the good with the bad here and, and learn something, you know, make a project, build something. And I, I think it's useful. I think it's great. Okay. Yeah, me too. So the thing square thing, they just did it as a prototype as a fun thing to kind of show off that they could do it. So it is not for sale, but I bet you could create your own if you wanted to. All right, let us telemedicine, telemedicine. And we'll be talking about this more with our guest. But HIPAA rules have been relaxed for video chatting. Google Hangouts is actually HIPAA compliant, according to Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny you, this came up, uh, and granted, it, this is specifically for the U.S. market. We we realize that, but my wife used a telemedicine conference with her practitioner just yesterday, and uh, unfortunately, it didn't work for some reason. They couldn't hear us, even though I tried to troubleshoot and whatnot. So we ended up just having it over a phone call. But uh, yeah, so um, a lot of different FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Hangouts, as you said, Skype, normally. 
most of those can't be used for talking to your doctor because of HIPAA rules and security. So I think it's smart for them to relax this. Yeah. And it allows you to do, you'll hear this later from Nick Dawson, but he's like, you know, popping HIPAA compliant on some proprietary telemedicine platform adds, you know, 5x the cost when really what you need is like something like FaceTime. Yeah. In other encouraging news around people trying to contribute projects, the Linux Foundation has open sourced and made people aware of their Project OWL, and they open sourced the Project OWL IoT device firmware. And Project OWL stands for Organization Whereabouts and Logistics. It is a mesh network of IoT devices called Duck Links. Sorry, I had to do that. Indeed. I like uh, Duck Links. We love duck links. These are Wi-Fi enabled devices. You just pop them up and they're designed for disaster areas to basically quickly reestablish connectivity. And they, they have their own distributed network. They create the local area network with the duck links. And then those go out back to the internet at large using LoRa because the range is so much greater. So these are, this isn't that kind of disaster situation where you're probably popping up networks really quickly, but you actually might for like a quick medical response team. But it's also interesting in the future for things like what if you are out there, your repair team for like an oil pipeline, you've got to go to a remote area, you could just pop something like this up very quickly and take it back down when you're done. This is a cool project. Go check it out if you're in the need for, if you have a need for I guess, quickly deployed remote communications. I just have to hit this one point because I think it's hysterical. The firmware that they have released, according to ZDNet, can turn a cheap wireless device into a duck link using the, wait for it, cluster duck protocol. Oh, no. Mesh network nodes that can hook up to any other nearby ducks. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan. I really thought the internet would be more distributed by now. I was a huge fan of Serval mm. and some other mesh networking projects out there. I used to run it on my phone just in case. But we've really kind of gone by the wayside there. And that kind of makes me a little bit sad. Other things that make me a little bit sad. Israel is tracking people is using it. There's a software company in Israel using software to track people's phones and use that to detect their contacts. China is also doing this. They're using basically QR codes because you use QR codes to get everywhere. So they're tracking people's movements and using it to track contacts between people who have the coronavirus and people who are infected or get so, infected. So so this is a temporary uh, measure. I believe it's a 30-day measure in, in Israel. And I understand why people might be concerned about it from a privacy standpoint. On the flip side, you know, this is these are not normal times. And this type of data and tracking can actually do a world of good to head off further virus infection and spread. So I kind of, I get it. And it, ironically, a couple of days ago, um, my wife and I were talking about how would we know who we came in contact with, where we were, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, it doesn't tell me who I've come in contact with, but I do have Google Maps location always on. And I have the history. I can always go back and see where I was at certain place, certain date, certain time, maybe that'll jog my memory. Like, oh, I bumped into this neighbor there or whatever. It could be useful. I kind of get why they're doing this right now. And I, and as long as it's a temporary measure, I'm okay with it. Oh, temporary measures often become permanent, but yes. No, I agree. I, I, I'm not saying I'm fully thrilled with it, but again, these are not normal times. That is true. All right. We'll keep an eye on it. 
Okay. And Kevin, both you and I are pretty active. We work out. You used to do a, a mile a day just for fun. That was weird. Or more. No more. But you looked at some options for people who are stuck at home, can't get to the gym, or maybe- Or the, or the gym's closed. I or mean, the gym's closed now. Yeah. 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 So what have you found? So I have a, a bunch of things here. I may not run through every single one of them, but I, I will uh, share a, a guideline or two first and then talk about some services and or devices. And, and I'll go in order of free or cheapest up to most expensive, because like right now there's an economic potential crisis given the health crisis. So I, and I, I respect that. So the first thing I would say, and I, I'm assuming you do this already, Stacey, if you have a wearable device that can track any of your health and it's just sitting around, get it on your wrist. I mean, get a baseline, get, get something that's measuring every day, right? It's going to help provide a history of everything during this crisis, as well as, you know, as you're working out. So I don't know about you, but I, I wear an Apple watch and have it constantly tracking all my, my stuff. Do you wear something now or no? I wear a Fitbit charge three. And I will say that I love it because I I have this goal of walking at least five miles a day. I'm going to up it to six miles. I was inspired by Elizabeth Warren, I'll be honest, y'all. And it's actually really helping me get those miles in. So yay. Yeah. That's the first thing. If you already have something like that, wear it and use it. If you currently work out or used to work out with a group or with friends, this is a real easy, cheap thing to do, assuming you have uh, either what you need to do your workouts at home. Schedule workout times with them and use video chat to quote unquote work out together. You know? Oh, that feels so cheesy, but you're probably right. No, because honestly, when I was doing my my run every day, and, and some days it was only a mile, that was the minimum. Sometimes it would be a lot more. It, I shared that socially, and that put so much pressure on me to keep it going. And, you know, when you work out with friends, you're more likely to stick to the workout and, and it'll be more fun and you're more likely to enjoy it and keep doing it. So, it, you know, I'm just thinking of things that people already have that they can leverage. No, you're right. Speaking of devices, um, if you don't have a device, I would consider there's plenty of good ones out there, but I would consider buying one from Garmin. And the reason I say that is they start relatively inexpensive and starting with their Vivo, Act, I'm sorry, yes, the Vivo Active 3, which costs $249, every device on up in, from the Vivo Active 3 supports Garmin Connect. And that is a fantastic app that just that measures your progress. It gives you feedback. It tells you maybe you're working out too hard. It's actually giving you actionable information from the metrics. And that is free. There's a ton of data. It integrates with Apple Health and other platforms. So uh, you get virtual challenges, workout feedback, as I said. I would, I would definitely look at that. Something that I used to use, I don't anymore just because I cut back, not because it was bad, is Peloton Digital. And I know everybody hears Peloton and says, I'm not spending $2,500 on Peloton. You don't have to. If you have an exercise bike or you have workout equipment or you have a treadmill, do what I did. Subscribe to Peloton Digital, which is uh, $12.99 a month, but they are now upping their 90-day tr uh, their free trial to 90 days. So you can try it. And you get the live classes and recorded classes that the Peloton device owners get. So you get cycling, running, walking, strength workouts, yoga, and more. Not that expensive. And it gives you that gym-like atmosphere. So I'm going to try that. I used that. to do the yoga ones even. Wow. There's meditation ones too. Ooh, that's yeah. probably good for everybody. <laughs> yes. Here's another one that you have tried, and I have too way back in the day, uh, the Nike Run Club, and also there's a Nike Training Club. I use the Training Club, not the Run Club, because I will not run. 
<laughs> That's okay, but it's fifteen dollars a month for this premium service. I think it's one twenty for the year if you want to, you know, save some money. The training club that you use, so they have guided workouts in just about every type of area i would assume. oh yeah they have so the training club is actually free the basic plan the yes. basic plan and the basic plan is excellent the workouts are good there's plenty that are like 30 minutes or less they do a lot of compound movements they you can select for like body weight or if you have weights or if you have you know a full gym you can do all of that and the premium is there's just more and there's slightly different workout formats. And then there's a bunch of stuff about nutrition and, and the mindset of an athlete that I just ignored. But, you know, that might be valuable to you. I do not know. There you go. And and the run club is similar, although it only focuses on running, not not general health exercises and such. I used to use the run club and compete against my friends in virtual races. Again, that social aspect you get. Oh, um, I, but I have to warn people. Nike training club is not for the faint of heart. Do not go in there thinking I am really good at things and I will be an advanced workout person because, oh my gosh, their workouts are hard. I'll just throw that out there. Sorry. There you go. Then if you are looking for smart gear to exercise with, I have two. One, I think you told me you may buy. It sounds really cool. That's the Jack Jock Smart Kettlebell for $229, currently 10% off, maybe because of what's going on. So it's a smart kettlebell in that it's one kettlebell, but it has different weights in it. So when you pick it up, it can weigh 12 pounds, 18, 24, 36, 42 pounds, based on how much um, of the plates or mass inside you want to use. It kind of has a lot of the same sensors we see in phones for movement, gyroscope, accelerometer, six-axis MEMS, and it tracks how much you're lifting and your weight, um, sorry, your reps and sets and all that. And the app comes with a bunch of, of kettlebell exercises as well. Yay. Is that something you're interested in? I totally want it, but I also have the Bowflex weights that are not connected and you can change. So I'm kind of like, mm -hmm. mm. well, that, that brings me to my next one. Um, this now you're, you're up to like well over $500 is those Bowflex connected dumbbells that go from five to 60 pounds. They're Bluetooth enabled sensors, same kind of the concept track the weight you're lifting, rep sets. There's 30 exercises in the, in the free app. So. Um, I think the list price is $549, but I've seen them online for $479 if you want that. And then I know not everybody is spending money like uh, Banshee right now, but if you have $1,495, the mirror actually is pretty impressive. And that it is essentially a mirror, but it also watches your workout, gives you workouts, and it uses AI to recommend changes in the exercises as you're doing them. It has online classes, can read your heart rate from a connected Bluetooth wearable. It has 70 new classes each week for you to do various exercises, Wow! but you will pay 39 a month for Ooh. that. Ooh. Yeah. So the 1500 doesn't get you new classes every week. Um, so that's something to consider. Again, if you want to spur the economy and you got 1500 to spend and 39 a month, I'd say the mirror. Okay. Well, I'm going to stick with the kettlebell. Okay. Well, that's about it for our coronavirus coverage. Stay tight, y'all. Stay tight. Stay safe. Up on normal IoT news, TELUS, which is the French defense company, Telstra, Microsoft, and Arduino have come together to build a security, like an end-to-end, -end, I hate saying those words, security system for industrial IoT. And what happens is it requires a SIM or an eSIM that has TELUS's IoT safe application that's going to be automatically and securely provisioned on there. It'll have a digital certificate. 
It's stored in the SIM, and then it connects back to Microsoft's cloud seamlessly. So that's all built in. And it'll check. It'll be like, yeah, I'm who I say I am. And Microsoft's cloud will be like, are you? Yes, it is. And then it'll it'll share that. So this is the idea is you'll be able to do this over a cellular network, and it's going to be GSMA approved. GSMA is the the organization that handles all kinds of standards for the cellular networks. This is really important. Arduino is going to be a partner and probably provide hardware with this eSIM capability built into it. So, you know, just it's cool. So you know what it does? It actually reminds me of securing devices with the trust zone or trusted platform module that's checking to see if updates uh, are safe instead of doing it with a chip in a sense, silicon, they're doing it with the SIM card. That's that's kind right. of clever. And I, I've not seen that approach. I, yeah, I haven't. And Arduino, they've got a library that uses this. It's going to be an alternative to their crypto chip that's already on the board. So you could have your true device-based security, or you could have, you know, a, we'll call it a network-based security. Well, look at it this way. If a SIM is compromised, one of these SIMs, you could replace it far easier than replacing the chip on an Arduino board. That is true. I like it. All right. In the in the world of security, <laughs> the IoT Security Foundation issued a report this week, and I may write more about this because it's it's pretty eye opening stuff. But they analyzed 330 consumer IoT device manufacturers and revealed that. Five out of every six of those companies, they don't allow for vulnerability reporting. And this is something that we've called for for years now is when you buy a device, look up the company making the device and make sure they have like a bug bounty program or some way for people to say, hey, I found a flaw. So that's what they're talking about here. They also say that of manufacturers that allowed vulnerability reporting, many of them don't have disclosure timeline affiliated with it, which means they could just be like, yeah, I see your vulnerability. We'll fix it whenever. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of scary. Uh, 86.7% of the companies they looked at don't have a disclosure policy like that. Yeah, and that was better than the prior year when 90% didn't have it. But, uh, you know, we we need need to get better faster. Yes. So they talked about mostly major brands, which is why we tend to say, hey, those off-brand things, Mm. you got to be pretty careful. So the companies that do support this are Amazon, Apple, Fitbit, Dyson, Garmin, Google, HP, Huawei, HTC, Lenovo, LG, Motorola, Samsung, Siemens, Signify, which is Philips Hue, and Sony. Some of them also had a bug bounty that allows people to report it and get a reward. And they wanted to see a disclosure timeline. Yeah, and only four companies had a 90-day deadline for fixing issues like this that are reported. And that doesn't mean that the companies that don't have a policy aren't fixing their things. It's just that it's harder to find. Like, I I don't know about you, but I'm on security Twitter every now and then. And, you know, you'll see people like, hey, does anybody have a contact at this company? I found something. So, yeah, I mean, call it a service level agreement that's publicly known, whatever you want to call it. I mean, a lot of companies do this for uptime of their services and such, and they're very upfront about it. But how about when you fix something that's really broken and dealing with my personal data? Give me a service level agreement when you want to fix that. Yeah, good luck with that. That's going to need a federal mandate right there. I'm so needy. So let's talk about your personal data. CNET issued a story this week that I'm kind of sad I did not write because I knew it. 
and I didn't realize that nobody else knew this, so I I feel sad, but CNET reported on an Amazon and Google policy that has both of those companies not just getting data from smart home companies when you ask Madam A or Google to take an action, but basically all the time, anytime that device is turning on a light switch or opening a lock. Now, the story was basically that companies are upset. Like if you are a lock maker and Every time someone opens the lock, even if they don't use Amazon and Google, Amazon and Google still know that. That feels really scary. That's valuable data that Amazon is getting. It's the state change. I get it. I sort of understand why Google and Amazon need that, though, because if if you then use their voice assistant, it needs to know the state. Right. So that's Amazon and Google's argument for doing it. I will say there are companies, bigger companies have negotiated with Amazon and Google to make that not the case. So not every device you have. There are companies, and I don't think I'm allowed to name them, who don't share that information. They are the larger companies in the world. So with that in mind, it is possible that you might have higher latency as Amazon has to go back to the cloud to check the state change. There are ways to do that locally, I will say. It's a privacy versus convenience uh, balance, and that's the, that's the trade-off. Yeah. So I, I'm glad that CNET made this widely available to people or made it widely known. I'm sorry that I did not. I just assumed everyone knew. <laughs> but I would like to see more. I mean, this is why local control is for the privacy. I was privacy just going to say it. A local state server of sorts. <laughs> yeah. Wait, don't you have that with Home Assistant? Of course. Ta-da. All right. Other news. Sonos, they are doing their S2 operating system. They announced that this is a new operating system. It'll be out in June. This is what they were planning on and why <laughs> why the Sonos why, kerfuffle happened. Why the happened. old ones became legacy devices. Yeah, so what's going to happen is your older legacy devices, they will remain on the S1 OS. Your modern stuff will upgrade to S2 you can do a couple things. If you remove the S1 only system products from your system, then you can download the S2 OS later in June when it comes out, or you can run your existing system on the S1 app. You'll still get bug fixes and security patches, and they will work with their partners to keep the music as long as possible. Or you can separate your system into two, but you won't be able to group an S1 system with the S2 system. And the new software so far, I mean, details are sketchy other than we have new software, it's coming out in June, and it's only for new devices. So far, the only thing I've seen that this software will support is high-resolution audio, which nice to have, but I hope there's more. Yeah. I mean, maybe I don't hope that because I have some old gear. Uh, well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Amazon, they are open sourcing their just walk out software. So right, this we talked about the first big supermarket that has the cashierless Amazon Go framework with cameras and the app that you scan to come in and you get billed based on what the camera saw you take. And we were wondering, you know, oh, Amazon's gonna are they gonna sell this to other companies, retailers, and such? And will Amazon get the data? And it turns out that no, Amazon won't get the data. And I have a feeling this is a way to woo the retailers such as Walmart and Target and others to use the software and the solution. If that happens, I think it's a win-win, but I'm surprised that Amazon's not getting the data. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm surprised so much as, sure, I am surprised that Amazon is not getting the data. I would not say that they're not getting any data. 
that's just my hunch. Mm, um, that's fair. But I mean, because people will probably host this, they want them to host this on Amazon, not that Walmart will. But the other thing to think about here is we with COVID-19 and social distancing, the idea of cashierless checkout has just suddenly become way more appealing to a lot of people. You are spot on because I just helped a neighbor who just got a new iPhone. She upgraded from a six to an 11. Big upgrade there. She's like, how do I turn this Apple Pay thing off? I'm like, no, 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 no. I said, I think you should keep it on because it's A, more secure than using a credit card from a financial standpoint, but B, you don't have to touch anything. Nobody wants to touch your cards or your dirty money right now. Consider turning it on. And she didn't because she thought you had to have an Apple card. When I explained it works with many, many cards, then she's like, oh, maybe I will do that because yeah, I don't want to be touching stuff. So yeah, this is contactless all the way. Okay. Other news. Oh, this startup, we've talked about it before. I think it's super fun. Aura. They raised $28 million. Kevin, you want to tell us about Aura? Right. So uh, the $28 million is a Series B round of funding. Aura is based out of Finland. And you may have heard about it. I haven't heard about them in a while, but basically they make a titanium smart ring. It's got LEDs, temperature sensors, accelerometer, gyroscope, and it's it's a health tracking device. I was surprised to see, oh, I should say it also does um, sleep tracking as well. And you get that information, all the data in the app. I was surprised to see only because I haven't seen it yet that they have sold 150,000 of these things. And they were um, sold out for a long time. People really, yeah. this appealed to a lot of people. Yeah, I would consider something like this, but I would like it for NFC contactless payments. And I don't think they do that. That's all the news that's fit to talk about this week. I, I shouldn't say that. There's probably other news that's fit to talk about that we just didn't talk about. But it is time for our voicemail. This is the part of the show where we take a call from our audience. That's y'all. And we try to answer your toughest questions about the smart home or really anything. Maybe not philosophy or physics, but we'll try. And if you have a question and want to call us, you will be entered to win our March prize, which is an Aware Glow C. It is a air quality monitoring device that also has a smart outlet in it, and you could plug all kinds of things in it to adapt your air quality, or you can just plug a lamp into it and set it on a timer. It's up to you. And if you want to be entered to win or just ask us a question, call us at 512-263-7424. And now let us go to our question. This week's question is from Logan. Let's hear it. Hi, Stacey and Kevin. Logan calling from Iowa. I recently bought a house and I'm looking to convert all of my lights over to LED. And I also want to add some smart capabilities. I considered doing this uh, multiple ways. I've looked at smart bulbs and also smart switches. So I kind of wanted to ask your guys' opinion on which, uh, if you had uh, one versus the other, you would recommend. Kind of like Kevin, where I'm against hubs, and I would like to find something that doesn't use a hub, such as the Philips Hue light bulbs. But if I do go like the Samsung smart things route, if I do the smart switches, I'm more okay with that just because I feel like I can use that for more than just my lighting. I've already got a Google smart speaker system in my home, so anything that works with Google would be preferred. If you do end up recommending the smart switch route, if you have any manufacturers in mind, uh, that would be helpful since I'm going to have to look preferably for something that's inexpensive, an inexpensive light switch, uh, just because of the number of switches I have to purchase in my home. I've looked at Zoos, spelled Z-O-O-Z, as one option. I'm not sure if this is a great option or not. I'm looking for more suggestions on that. 
Thanks a lot. I love the podcast. Oh, Logan, you have hit on a point of divide between Kevin and I. Ah, <laughs> I yelled at Kevin today. It was terrible. She did. She did. First time ever. I was like, Kevin, no. We're still friends. Yes. I, I apologized. I was like, oh, I'm yelling at you. I'm sorry. I just feel so passionate about these lights. <laughs> so we're going to start with a budget solution. I'll give Kevin first chance to make his case. Okay. And, and I will say right up front, depending on how many lights you need to transition here, I would consider the C by GE bulbs. You mentioned Philips Hue. You could certainly go that route as well. These work without a hub. They work with your Google Assistant, Google Home product. Again, no hub needed. Um, They come in plain white, tuned white, and full color, simple to set up, and relatively inexpensive. You're talking like like $15 a bulb. could go up if you want more features and such. You can also use these if you decide later to add a hub. So I, I think this sets you up nicely. However, if you're replacing your whole house lighting and you've got a lot of bulbs, it may make sense to do switches. And that's where Stacy comes in. So I think it always makes sense to do switches. <laughs> And I'll say this because when you have smart bulbs, it's fine to put a smart bulb in a lamp. It's when you start putting smart bulbs in fixtures that have switches, people will turn off the switches. And when they turn off the switches, your light bulb becomes dumb. It breaks. And I feel like most people live with people or have guests who are going to turn off their lights. It's a lot to ask someone not to hit a switch. So that's my rationale. And for the whole home, I think it's probably more reasonable too depending on how many you need, right? Kevin, do not make me yell at you again. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I'm a little fancier than Kevin. My ultimate lighting solution, everyone can probably say it with me now as I go, is Lutron. Lutron. Yeah, I know. But they are the highest end. Well, they're not the highest end, but they're pretty high end. They're 60 bucks a switch. Usually there's a hub that you're going to need. And I know you don't like hubs, but this hub basically acts as a HomeKit, Google, and Amazon Bridge. And that's where Lutron puts all the smarts. So if you invest in these $60 light switches, you will just replace this hub over time and you will not like have to redo your light switches. Right. The only thing to consider is doing the switches is one part of the cost. You still need to get standard LED bulbs for all of your fixtures and lamps and so on. So there's still the cost of that as well. Yeah, but I mean, that's like seven bucks a bulb or three bucks a bulb, depending on your yeah, bulb. Yeah, sure. But yes, so so that's our highest end option. And I will. the reason I love Lutron is because they're easy to pair. It is an incredibly reliable system. It works with all of the major integrations that you want out there. They're nice looking switches as well. And they're nice looking switches. Let's say you're like, mm, Stacy, too rich for my blood. That is okay. You mentioned having Z-Wave and Zigbee capability in your house. If you did something like a SmartThings Hub, like a $99 SmartThings Hub, or if you want to go crazy and be like Kevin, you can get a home assistant thing and a dongle. Then you could do, GE makes a, a Z-Wave switch that is $45. And there is also, the Zigbee switch is also around $45. Those are high quality switches. I had them in my house for a while. They sometimes you can find them for $35, which is pretty nice as well. Also remember that when you have an electric, you're going to have to have an electrician out or you're going to do it yourself. If you're going to switch out a lot of light switches, 
I would have an electrician do it just because it's such a pain in the butt and they can do it so fast. So you're looking at a a call out fee. So they'll charge you X number of dollars to come out to your house. In Texas, having an electrician come out, each light switch cost me like 25 bucks to swap out. So he also mentioned the, the zoos, which again, electrician, I would recommend. We have not used these switches, the zoos switches, but I bring them up because they're about 30 bucks a switch. So cheaper than the Lutrons, yes. And these are supported by smart things. And I would assume Home Assistant by that token as well. So if you decide you want a hub in the future or even now, these would work with that. Yes. And a lot of things will work with smart things. Most basic light switches, you're going to pay slightly more for a paddle versus a toggle switch. That's one thing to think about. uh, A lot of the smarter light switches don't have a toggle option, actually. I would stick, if you're going to do a B or Z-Wave thing, I would stick to those as opposed to like a Wi-Fi-based switch, just because I, I'm getting a little leery about all the mm-hmm. intelligence into these Wi-Fi switches, and I think you might have to like take them out after a certain point in time. So right, that's right. that's just my concern. And, and to that point, I think you're right. Most companies that make these switches, you're going to pay more for a paddle switch instead of the old traditional toggle. However, I'm looking at Zoos right now, and either is $29.95. Pick your favorite. Pick your favorite. Logan, I hope that helps you. I hope you feel honored that that you made Kevin and I fight. (laughs) No. And that concludes this portion of the show this week. Please stay tuned for our guest, Nick Dawson, who is going to talk about telemedicine, the future of connected medicine after COVID-19, and much more. I will say the interview has a few points where we get a little Skypey because I don't know if it's overloaded networks or what, but there are a few moments there. I'm just warning the sound sensitive among you, but it's a really good interview and it's not, it's not atrocious. It's just a few points in the interview. And now please stay tuned for this week's sponsor, Machine Q. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Machine Q, a Comcast service. And I have Hannah Schneider here with us from Machine Q. So Hannah, remind us, what is Machine Q? Machine Q is a Comcast service that helps enterprises connect their operations through our integrated suite of low-power IoT devices, gateways, and management software. There are two primary products we offer today, infrastructure, which includes our IoT gateways, APIs, and our flagship device and gateway management experience, MQ Central, and then our platform product, which includes a portfolio of low-power sensing devices. We offer temperature, leak detection, vibration, and energy monitoring devices, many other use cases, all of which can be layered on top of our infrastructure product. Excellent. So we previously learned how customers are using Machine Q's infrastructure product. This week, I'd really like for you to talk about your platform product. Can you tell us how enterprises are using that today? Absolutely. We're currently working with a Fortune 500 food retailer to solve their needs for our Machine Q platform product. This customer came to Machine Q to prevent costly inventory write-offs for their refrigerated food items. They were looking for a temperature-sensing device whose transmissions could penetrate through refrigerators, a dedicated low-power IoT network through which these battery-powered devices could communicate, as well as software to manage their deployment. Machine Q was able to provide a solution for this customer through our platform product, and that included our MQ Flex device, which is a multi-sensing device that includes sensing capabilities for temperature, humidity, and more, our Area 8C, which is our indoor low-power IoT gateway, and then our suite of APIs and MQ Central software, all of which they can use to manage their network. And what was the result of all of this? 
This customer was able to take advantage of the Machine Q integrated product experience to drive cost savings by repurposing their valuable labor resources to focus on revenue driving initiatives in their stores rather than on manual food temperature monitoring. In addition, MQ Central also offers notifications. So with this, their employees can be alerted whenever a refrigerator or freezer temperature falls outside of those customer set thresholds, which allows them to take action to avoid any food spoilage. That is important. So why has this customer found the Machine Q platform valuable for their business? Yes, historically, we've seen that companies take a more siloed approach to IoT, where they focus on deploying a point solution. And while that solves an immediate need, it really limits their ability to scale those additional use cases without excessive complexity and cost. They found that Machine Q is especially valuable because they realize that they can layer on those additional use cases in their retail stores, in most cases without requiring any additional infrastructure. This customer has since expanded their deployments to include leak detection and are now even considering other use cases. Awesome. All right. Thank you. That really brings the Machine Q platform product to life. So where can our listeners go to find out more about Machine Q? Listeners can learn more at machineq.com slash Stacey. That's machineq.com slash S-T-A-C-E-Y. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Nick Dawson, who is working at the intersection of design and medicine and has worked at institutions such as Johns Hopkins, Stanford and Kaiser Permanente. Hi, Nick. How are you doing today? Hey, Stacy. Well, I am. I'm well, which I now realize has a whole different connotation than the way we often say it. So I'm well, and everyone in my family and is is healthy for now. But I think we're all kind of living in a state of of anxiety and and uncertainty. Indeed, and some of us are are locked in our homes, and some of us are curious why everybody else is locked in their homes. It's it's very there's a very uneven distribution of reactions out there, and of course, I don't know if you've been on an episode of Big Brother and don't realize it, we're talking about COVID nineteen, and here in the U.S., cases are up. I'm not even going to tell you what they are because I'm recording this a couple days early, but cases are steadily rising, and many cities have put, if not shelters in place, but locking down restaurants coffee shops, hair salons, schools, workplaces. It just goes on and on. So we're here to talk about what technology can help us do in this situation, which is a broad and fun question. And Nick, where are we now with technology in medicine? Because I feel like I've been talking about telemedicine since like 2005. It's still not here. I feel like we have connected gadgets that can take our vitals remotely and send them to our doctor. And I feel like even now, none of that is actually useful for very many people. Yeah, it it really is an interesting time. We're drowning in uh, this wealth of of amazing tech, and a lot of it has been built around health or fitness or health adjacent things, either at the consumer level or organizations that have tried to make those things relevant to medical providers. And you're absolutely right. For a number of years, we've we've looked at those things and said, why aren't they getting adopted? I think this is going to be, we're finding this in a lot of areas, but this is going to be a time when we start questioning as a society, a lot of the reasons why not. So does remote work really work or not? And we're probably going to come out of this with a new societal understanding of what working from home means and how productive people can be. And and probably, I hope, some new organizational norms and behaviors that allow people to be a little more flexible in their work. So we're probably going to see similar things around health and health tech. It's interesting. I was I was thinking about it a lot recently, and there's a lot of discussion around telemedicine right now. And a lot of organizations have not 
historically had a, kind of a high use or even a, a way to do telemedicine. And I'll talk about the reasons for that in a minute, but I suspect we're going to come out of this with a much broader use and adoption and acceptance of telemedicine. If I look at the barriers to this stuff and to this conversation, it's not technical. It's not a technical barrier. We know how to do these things. We see integrations of medical devices in our daily lives all the time. And you look at Apple's Health Kit, for instance, and uh, their play with the watch. What I see mostly in institutions and kind of the front line of medical delivery is either institutional or regulatory bureaucracy. And we don't want to just uh, scrap those things. We need privacy laws. We need to be very metered and appropriate in our adoption of these things. But for a long time, people have said, you know, the problem with telemedicine isn't one of the technology. You can even use FaceTime. There's tons of ways to do this stuff. But it's a function of can I bill for it? Can I practice across state lines? You know, will my institution allow me to do it? Do we even have a way of capturing the, the documentation that comes out of it? We're used to doing that in a clinic setting, but I might not be used to doing it in a telemedicine setting. So I think the the really interesting things to work on or be thinking about right now are not the technology, but it's the barriers to its adoption. And that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's break this down into a couple things. So we talked a lot about telemedicine. Can you talk a little bit also about tools that might help doctors diagnose or manage conditions remotely? Because I know that we're seeing lots of, there's things like, like you said, the Apple Watch with AFib. There are FDA approved devices that will test your blood pressure and vital signs that you can send along. So I guess one thing to think about is how far along are we, not just in terms of having an internet connection and the rules in place for telemedicine, but also things that can help a doctor extend their capabilities beyond a video screen. Yeah. So I uh, some thoughts about this, but I'm going to start with two prefaces. One is uh, a bit of a metaphor. I got my pilot's license when I was 17. And one of the first things they teach you is the first step is always fly the plane. So if you have an emergency, if an engine goes out, if something happens, the first thing you do is fly the plane, then you make the radio call, and then you make a plan. And the, the idea there is don't focus on the, the downstream things, focus on the most urgent thing, and that's flying the plane. And I feel like right now, one thing that's just really important to say is we've got a lot of doctors, including folks who may not even have a specialty as an intensivist, practicing medicine in a really critical time. And one of my messages to the design and tech and innovation community has been, we need to let them fly the plane right now. And it's not a not a great environment to come in and say, let's try an experiment or a prototype. But there are ways to do those things and ways that we all should be exploring those things so that when the time is right, we have a, a, an ability to help come and say, this has been tested and vetted and, and something we can drop in now. So the other preface is, of course, that I'm uh, point out is that I'm not a clinician and that there's a lot of things that we look at in my work and with the teams that I work on where we spend a whole lot of time shoulder to shoulder with physicians and clinicians and try to understand things from their needs and their perspectives. But there's some things here that we might talk about that touch on clinical things. And it would be really important that, that we also, when the timing is right, get a chance to vet those things with doctors and clinicians. So some of the things that come to mind are, if we look at the, the diagnostic model right now for this disease, for COVID-19, what a lot of physicians are recommending is keep an eye on your temperature. And, and if your temperature is manageable and you are what they would call walking sick, and, and even if you're laying in bed and feel like you've got chills and, and joint pain and you're achy like flu symptoms, but, but you're able to at least get yourself up and use the restroom or get water or fluids, and that's kind of that walking well. So a lot of the things we're hearing is monitor temperature, see if you can bring temperature down with fever reducers, things like Tylenol or aspirin. I just think even the idea of having a really good 
thermometer in the house. And I've made sure that we have both a connected thermometer because I like to be able to graph those things over time and, and I like the data, but also having just a good old fashioned alcohol thermometer, a good old fashioned glass thermometer that you know will work regardless of circumstance. The other key indicator that I'm seeing on diagnostic aids is blood oxygen. So finding a, uh, a really inexpensive, there are 20 or $30 blood oxygen monitors you can get. You've probably seen them. They're little devices that slip over a finger and use a, a pulse of light to determine oxygen levels in the blood. There are more expensive ones in kind of the $60 range that are connected and we'll talk to HealthKit or kind of other you know, service integrators. So then that leads into how do we get that information if the time is right to a clinician, uh, to somebody who might be your primary care doctor, or if you end up in an emergency room, how do you get it to them? And in the practical sense right now, that's just going to be conveying it. Hey, I just took my blood oxygen and it's below 92%. And I'm starting to get worried that that's a trend. And that might, the, that might happen over a phone call. It might happen uh, in person if you have to go see somebody. Those things are probably going to be a, a one-to-one communication right now. But institutionally, we're starting to see this whole area of middleware emerge of these tools whose job it is to ingest this, what sometimes is called patient-generated health data. So how do we take that and ingest it in some way and then insert it into the electronic medical record? And there's a bunch of different companies and organizations that are trying to create solutions to solve that so that you could say at the iOS level, I'm going to grant my health kit access to my trusted provider organization, or you might do it at the device level and say, I'm going to tr- I'm going to share this blood oxygen level with my organization. There are so many interesting institutional barriers to doing that right now. Again, it's not a, it's not a technical one, but it is a, there's a, a human barrier and an institutional barrier there. So the idea of barriers, what are some of the barriers, especially on the business side or the tech side that we need to overcome with some of these third-party information holders and suppliers? Yeah. Well, there's a couple that come to mind. And and to the previous part of our conversation, most of them are bureaucratic and I might even say risk adverse in nature. So to start with, most of the major electronic medical record platforms offer a growing number, but still a pretty sparse amount of APIs. And they even charge for their APIs, which is a bit of a challenge. So an organization might say, I'm really interested in creating a pathway to be able to ingest patient data from a wearable device, for instance. But the challenge there is their API platform, their electronic medical record platform says, okay, well, that's X amount of dollars or cents per interaction, per hit on that API. And for a lot of organizations, that's just a financial non-starter, or it's a it's a thing that they leverage in the next round of contract negotiations and gets you know, kind of tricky and, and contentious. There's a, an emerging open standard called FI. FHIR, that is a health information API set that we're starting to see both the EMR vendors adopt, but we're also seeing organizations within the ones that have the resources build out their own implementations of that FHIR platform. I'm hopeful that this might be one of those catalyst moments in time where we say, you know, what we really need now is open APIs that are not encumbered by contractor or charge rates so that people can uh, more freely, at least from a a financial perspective and a contract perspective, change interchange information here. The other uh, challenge that we still really haven't solved for is which information is important to a doctor or a clinician and how do we get it to them in a digestible format? 
So I remember even when the very first Fitbit came out, the first thing we heard was, I don't want to see a chart of your daily steps. So we have to get this data in a way that is that is actionable, that's easy to understand, and that doesn't add to the already tremendous workload burden that physicians have working through their electronic medical record. So you could imagine the nightmare scenario for them is this inbox that says, all of your 2,000 patients that you cared for, here's an alert or update on each one of them. Nick sat on the couch all day. Stacy did an exercise class and was out and moving. And, and Ralph down the street has low blood oxygen. One of those is really, really important right now. The two others are just kind of spam in their in-mail box. So we've got to figure out a way to solve for some of those things. And that, to me, is a place where design and design teams have a pretty prominent role. So let's go back to telemedicine and some of the barriers that are facing us right now that and maybe it's something we can put a moratorium on. So like for the next two months, we can get diagnosis. I mean, there are people doing remote diagnosis, but what what should that look like in the near term? And then what barriers should we think about for changing in the long term? I think one of the biggest barriers, and it's, it's frankly, it's a red herring, but it's the thing that comes up most often in any healthcare and health tech discussion is HIPAA. And HIPAA, if you look at it, it's first of all, it's it's getting pretty dated. It's uh, it kind of nearing a, a period, a well past a period where we need a more modern protection and privacy law. But I would take the point of view that it is primarily a patient empowerment rule that has been misconstrued as a organization risk. And so a lot of health lawyers would will do anything they can to protect an organization against a HIPAA violation or a HIPAA fine. So one of the challenges we often hear about telemedicine is uh, is just that, is it a HIPAA compliant platform? And we can have a whole detailed discussion about what HIPAA compliant means. And sometimes it's just a, a marketing term that a vendor might use and slap on a product to charge five times more to a healthcare organization. One of the things that I'm excited to dig in on a little bit this morning, administrator for CMS, the federal government's health program, came out and said, this is the time to use things like FaceTime and WhatsApp, and we will waive any HIPAA concerns over the next month or several months. And I, I want to read up on that to understand a little better of what they're allowing or what they're going to uh, maybe turn their attention away from during this period. But to me, that is a promising step. That's, a, that's somebody saying, I'm going to remove bureaucracy so that this care can go forward. So I think that's one barrier, and I'm encouraged that we're at the federal level having discussions around making that less of an encumbrance during this time. There is a challenge about credentialing across state lines. So you you get licensed to practice medicine in a state, and right now, and, and I'm thinking about where you are, there are folks in Portland that might live in Vancouver, Washington. So a physician who might be quarantined at home who lives in Vancouver, Washington may not be licensed to practice in, in Washington. They might be licensed to practice in Portland. So how do we really quickly re-examine some of those licensure things. And then the, the last area is around billing. Can can you bill for it? And different states and different insurance organizations have different policies on what they will reimburse for. And this is a time when we'll probably emerge with a new national dialogue around around maybe a set of standards for billing and reimbursing telemedicine or even prioritizing it. Ah, I will hope. That, that does sound <laughs> nice. And let's talk about access to care in these situations. So telemedicine depends on having access to broadband. Are the people who are vulnerable and probably, I, I'm thinking about the elderly, I'm thinking about homeless people, I'm thinking about all kinds of people who are poor, who may not have access to connectivity. How should we be thinking about, I guess, bringing the future of medicine to them in this crisis? Or how could this crisis help us figure that out? 
I'm, I'm really glad you're asking that question. This is a time when we might move so quickly that we don't pay, pay enough attention to certain things. So for instance, we could turn a blind eye to privacy and say, all of a sudden, we're going to not honor privacy as nearly as much as we should have. But to your point, we might also start to say, these are tools inadvertently say, we would never, hopefully never say it explicitly, but these are tools that are available to people who have them. And that would be detrimental to society in a number of ways. It'd be tragic and it'd be inhumane. So I've been thinking a lot about what actually is telemedicine, and there's kind of a spectrum there. And we've been talking about video, and you expanded it to say also devices, and how do we get kind of telemetry data about patients into systems. The other end of the spectrum is is the real root of that word of, of tele. And I think for a lot of things, particularly around this virus, a lot of that could be done just over the phone. It could be done with just a phone call to your doctor's office. Now, there's a, there's a concern there about volume of calls and the physician even have the time to return those calls. But I think we'll have to start to sort that out at an institutional level. But to be able to pick up the phone as an elderly person and say, I don't have video conferencing, I don't use Skype or FaceTime, but I do have these symptoms and I'm worried and I'm in this risk group is probably sufficient for a physician to make a call to be able to say, you need to come in or you need to get to an emergency room or you should be fine to to shelter in place and wait this out. The question about vulnerable populations is one I I wish I had some hope and insight and clarity around. Living in San Francisco, where we have a tremendous population of people without housing, been quite a bit worried about what's going to happen with them. How are they getting information? And we know a lot of them have sophisticated networks and use Wi-Fi outside of public places, but where are they going to shelter? Uh, Who's going to take care of them? Do they have access to care? One of the regulatory things that I've been encouraged by is this national discussion that's gotten a little politicized, but around testing and payment. And I think that's not at all sorted out yet, but I think what we're hearing our leaders say is your ability to pay should not affect getting treatment or getting tested. We're going to have to see how that unfolds, but I'm encouraged by that. Again, hopefully that will be one of those things that has a long-lasting halo effect in how we think about access to care in this country. Okay, I will hope with you. I feel like our country (laughs) has always said, yes. We want you to have access to care and testing and then does absolutely nothing to make that happen. However, that could change. We're a system of rich care, right? Not not of health care for everyone. And I think maybe this will be a time we reconsider that. I will hope. Okay. So for a lot of these are systemic. A lot of these depend on access to things like broadband or maybe specialized devices and possibly more doctors who are, you know, not busy flying the plane right now. But I am I am encouraged like how this could change healthcare going forward. I would say in this time where we all are now, what are what can I do? <laughs> what can can normal people do to help today, maybe just in three or four months, maybe help? Or what can other people in the technology space do? Yeah, I, I like that idea of helping too. I, one of the things that I've found uh, particularly helpful for me right now is seeing where can I apply some of this energy, and that energy could be could be anxiety or stress or concern. And I've been thinking a lot of it, a lot about my loved ones who live elsewhere in the country, and thinking about how do I channel some of that into doing something helpful and positive. And I think even having conversations like this that we can share widely with your audience. Is a, is a big step forward. One of the things that, that's been on my mind is what designers would call needs finding. And right now, there's a real strong temptation, at least for those of us in this design tech world, to start solutioning and say, I see the problem here. The problem is you know, not enough, whatever, name the thing, not enough diagnostic toolkits, and I'm going to write an app to diagnose COVID-19. And I'd suggest that's the exact wrong tack to take, that right now what we really need to do is listen for where the needs are. 
and those are going to be societal uh, and they're going to be medical. And one of the medical needs right now is a way for doctors at the front line to speak together quickly and easily and safely. So you could imagine a challenge here where you've got doctors in Washington State in the thick of this wanting to learn from the doctors in Italy, but having no functional way of being closely connected. What we're seeing is little ad hoc groups form on Twitter and, and information sharing happen that way. But that has its own challenges because it's happening out in the public and other people jump in and, and there's not a, a great way of validating who's a trusted source, who's actually a doctor in this group and, and who might be sowing seeds of, of misinformation. So looking for those those needs, and I, I'd suggest to anyone, look for the human part of the need first, not the tech need, because to the part of our uh, conversation at the beginning, most of the solutions exist. The, the challenges are around the human behaviors or the human needs there. One of the other things that I think we ought to be thinking a lot about is this social distancing. And we are social creatures. Uh, the, for those of us that fall closer to the introvert end of the spectrum, we are used to being around other people. One of the, the groups that I've been thinking about quite a bit, there's a, in design, there's this concept of extreme users, that if you really want to understand people's behaviors or needs, look for the most extreme version of a community. And kind of the famous example that a friend often talks about is designing shoes. They went and talked to people who never wear shoes and always go barefoot and people with foot fetishes that are really, really obsessed with feet and shoes. And the idea is that they'll tell you things that the group in the middle doesn't necessarily have the ability to articulate. And in this context, I think there's a lot of people in the rare disease community or the chronic disease community and the disabled community who are telling us this has never been our choice, but out of necessity, many of us have had to have social isolation for parts of, if not all of our life. And here's what we've learned. And here's our coping mechanisms. Here's how we've been using FaceTime and video chat and Google Hangouts to have a social life. So this is not new to us and you could learn from us. I think that's a, a really interesting group to pay attention to. They're also the same group who's been saying for years, download your medical record data. So for anyone who's sitting at home right now and saying, what do I do with a little extra time on my hands? This is a really good week to log into your doctor's portal and download a copy of your medical records. And if you're using an iOS device and you do that on an iPhone, your HealthKit app will prompt you to automatically ingest them and store them for you. I carry a copy of all my medical records around on a USB key. Got it. And I, as someone who has downloaded her medical records, I will say with the caveat of hoping that your doctor has the right software to read those medical <laughs> records. Okay. And Nick, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your perspective and your advice. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I hope everybody out there washes their hands, that everyone is as safe and healthy as possible. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 